Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we come together to bring, no wait, that's not how it goes, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing what it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Thankfully, this intro is not one of the times when it matters the most to perform perfectly. Great way to start. We'll be talking a lot about errors and what to learn from them today. My guest this episode is Gareth Locke. Now, Gareth has been working in the field of human factors and non-technical skills since 2015 in multiple domains, including healthcare and oil and gas. But he's most known for his work in the diving space under the banner of counter-errorism in diving with his company, The Human Diver. And that's where I interacted with him first throughout the setting of LinkedIn. Now, he's passionate about bringing the knowledge locked in academia to the wide world inside and outside of diving facilitating exploration and discovery around self, team, and organization. And I love that that bio, that blurb. I'm, I'm going to think I'm going to steal parts of that. I think that's like super interesting <laughs> because like separate from everything that you gave me in that, which is all true and fascinating, the work that you put out is just awesome. Just absolutely awesome. I mean, the stuff that you're bringing together about learning from error, about growing, about planning is amazing. And so I, I've been a you know, longtime fan of what I've been seeing of it. And I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Dan. And that means massive amount to me because my passion is about sharing the knowledge that I've collected and the experience that I've got. And and I still struggle with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a coach who just sits there and goes, Gareth, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You are creating change out there. You don't have to worry and just keep sharing that. And I love it. I want to show people the stuff that's locked and hidden and getting it from academia, getting it from different posts, putting different perspectives on things is one of my sort of, uh, I suppose, forte strengths, looking at things differently. There was a, you know, as an example of something that's outside of my space, but I got tagged in the conversation was about a police training professional and they were mm-hmm. talking about I think the Virginia Police Department had put a ruling out just recently and said the mere the, the, the word mere was in the thing so it was, it was basically the mere threat of a weapon being drawn then actually they shouldn't have done so and you know it was all about setting police officers up for failure mm-hmm. because they're going to be judged in hindsight and I turned around and went I'd be really interested to know why the police department used that language Mm. because any exchange we have has got different perceptions and we construct the meaning from our own experiences, our knowledge, our development that goes on. And so somebody will have written that with a reason, Mm -hmm. you know, a purpose. So what is that purpose? Is it about protecting the organization as opposed to actually setting teams up for success? So whenever I see stuff, it's about, okay, how do how can I look at this differently? Hmm. And people go, Oh, you're just being contrarian or you're just being a- an ass because you know, you're just picking holes in this. And it's like, yeah, but if we start to understand the different perspectives, we can get a much better idea of actually what's going on. Because there is no truth. There are multiple truths and we construct meanings from what's going on around us. I think certainly the aspect of that I really agree with is this idea of uh, using, you know, approaching these situations with curiosity and trying to figure out what the other person, what the other point of view, what the other group sees that I might not see and what does reality look like for them and learning from those deep dives into that. There's a ton that can be gained from 
just sort of adopting that stance of what does this other person see that I don't understand, right? Because it's so easy if you've been in one of these scenarios, you realize how little of a scope of vision you actually have on it compared to what is the reality underneath it. And, you know, I would counterpoint with you. I think there are things that are truths, right? So I don't think we could say that in the, the broad sense yeah. of it. There are certainly truths and there are ground truths. But when we approach these types of environments, whether they're in or out of an emergency department, right? Like our own field of vision is really limited <laughs> compared to the sum total reality of what's going on. My friend Preston Klein talks about weaponizing your curiosity, which is yeah. an interesting way to put that. But I think whatever you want to say, it is bringing curiosity into that. But Garrett, let's take one step back for folks that mm -hmm. aren't already like deep diving, no pun intended, I guess, into the work that you're doing. Like, man, I'm just like, on, I'm just like hitting weird notes this morning. I haven't had the right coffee, but like, it's all right. We're rocking with it. What can you tell folks about who you are and, and what you do and sort of how did you get into this space where you're sitting here with me having this rambling conversation? Yeah, it's a very diverse background. And actually that I think is one of the triggers or the supporting elements for what I do. So I joined the Air Force, Royal, the Royal Air Force in, in 1989. I get asked, you know, which Royal Air Force? No, there is only one. Everybody else is a sort of a copy beyond that. Having watched Top Gun, which was the best recruitment film that was out there. So I joined straight from school. I went through training. I was one of the youngest people going through my training. And I ended up in spending... Best part of 10 years flying on Hercules transport aircraft as a, as a navigator, both in the strategic and the tactical low-level roles operating in night vision goggles. Then went off and did a staff tour, and then went back and became a flight instructor in that same environment. Left the front line in 2004 and went and did a master's degree in aerospace systems. And the purpose of that was to be an intelligent customer. So the idea being that I could be a flight trials officer, I could work in procurement, systems engineering. And it was a very broad view of anything to do with aerospace, aerodynamics, propulsion, guidance, weapon systems, airborne computing, two or three week modules, learn, dump, exam, move on. Mm -hmm. I then went into flight trials work. I then went into research and development, so the UK equivalent of DARPA. I was a military advisor there. So anybody of the sort of listening here of, of old enough to remember the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, totally. I would describe my role as a Babelfish in a telephone directory. So I would work with some really bright researchers who didn't know what the front line was about or what the strategic views were. So I would translate uh, geek speak into frontline operator or strategic decision maker or industry conversations and back and forth. I then went to work in current systems engineering. So putting defensive aid systems onto transport aircraft and helicopters, stop getting shut down in operational war zones and things. So working with multiple stakeholders. And around that sort of time is when I started to dive. I had a couple of near misses, and I wanted to share that knowledge of a near miss. Because in military aviation, debriefing, instant reporting, getting the stories out there is just common practice. <laughs> but in the diving space, that wasn't there. And so I, I started into a part-time self-funded PhD that lasted six years, and then I cancelled it because I wasn't going anywhere industry wasn't interested, costing me lots of money. But I'd also at that stage, I left the Air Force in February 2015, started to work in oil and gas and healthcare and diving, delivering training programs around non-technical skills, psychological safety, just culture, how to develop a high-performance team using computer-based simulations, which are of low 
realism fidelity, but high cognitive fidelity. So time pressures, miscommunication, really poor interfaces. And then since then, I've basically been running training programs, taught about 500 people face-to-face globally. I've got about a dozen instructors now teaching my materials. And then two years ago, I saw a bit more than two years ago, I got back into the, I want to learn more about this. I want to change, you know, create change in the diving space. So I started a master's degree in human factors and system safety at Lund University in Sweden. I'm just about to submit the thesis, which is all about storytelling. And the title is Storytelling to Learn What mm-hmm. Happens Underwater Stays Underwater. And, Great. and it's looking about, oh, I, I, it, it's, it was one of the things that came out in a conversation was the fact that when you go diving, often stuff happens and nobody else knows about it. Mm. So it requires you to then tell that story. Whereas something that happens, say, in the ER or in aviation, <clears throat> there are often other observers who can pick that up and then you can start to have the conversation. Whereas actually the diving mm. space, even though you might be in the water with somebody, you might have a failure, you might have a poor decision, nobody notices it. And if you don't have any an environment where you can tell those what in effect are altruistic stories because I know that I screwed up and I'm probably not going to do that again. So it takes me time and effort to share my story with somebody else to then get that learning out there. And hmm. it, it, it's been a really interesting piece looking at organizational systems and, and problems that are in place in terms of barriers, but also at the individual level. What is an incident? How do you tell a story? that focuses on learning, not just about how I particularly screwed up or, or a mistake that happened, but what was the context that surrounded that? Yeah. How did it make it easier? You know, the, what I would say that the positive side of human factors is making it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing, whereas actually the context can shape it so it makes it easier to do the wrong thing and harder to do the right thing. And I'm sure you've got plenty of ER experiences of that where people get funneled down the wrong way because the system hasn't been designed to set them up for success. Well, all right. So yeah, I mean, there's like a thousand, there's a thousand different threads to take from that and any one of them would be (laughs) useful and worthwhile. I think maybe let's start with this. So I'm always curious to see what people say to this. In a second, I'm going to come back to this idea of push model versus pull model in terms of learning from things. But to start, what is your working definition of human factors? I think that term has a couple of different meanings depending on how you slice it. And there's a lot of either not being cognizant of it at all, or just sort of being like, oh, it's human factors, and you sort of wave your hands and then then move on. But what what does that mean to you? So the simple, you know, one sentence bit would basically making it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And that thing could be teamwork. It could be communication. It could be interacting with a dive computer or a rebreather or an aircraft or about ensuring, like we've just had two days ago with a collision on the end of the runway in Japan, of ensuring that we create a safe environment. And now, safe in itself is an open term. So Mm -hmm. a very simple way, making it easier to do the right thing, harder to do the wrong thing. But it's the interactions with people, other people, yourself, self-awareness, your performance, technology, processes, procedures, the culture, the environment. So 
there's a, a series of four blogs by Steve Shorrock. And actually, he talks about what is human factors <laughs> and what isn't human factors. And there are four different blogs for each one of those. And this piece about truth, you know, what does truth mean in human factors? If you're a cognitive psychologist or a cognitive individual psychologist, human factors will often be about that decision-making process. There's a model I use from Moray, a research paper from about 2000, which is like an onion model. So you mm. start with the cognitive processes in the center, and then you start working out and going, actually, the answer at the metrics, your interactions with hardware, software, your scare, you know, your body stuff. And then you start, okay, how do I interact with a team? And then we start talking about these non-technical skills. And then you say, okay, so how do you interact within an organization? And that organization sits within a community and a culture, which sits within a national legal framework. And you could take a slice right the way through that and say, that's what human facts system thinking mm -hmm. is about. Sure. Um, so let, let's put a couple of real life examples onto that to give you some, you know, some meat to that skeleton. So folks have a sense of what we're talking about if you're not already tracking human factor stuff. So probably even if you're not aware of it, the environment around you is designed, if you're in one of these fields that we all talk about, to nudge you towards doing things the right way. And that is sort of human factors, right? So a really top of mind example for me from last week was giving somebody an EpiPen injection, right? We had somebody mm -hmm. that came in with anaphylaxis. They needed a shot of epinephrine. And the way their the EpiPens, which are a, a trade name, are designed in the States, right, is they have an orange end that has the business in it and a blue end, which does not have the sharp part, right? And so in, you have it's shaped in a very certain way. There's a giant arrow. You have to flick the cap off in order to arm it, and then you do it. And all of these things are designed so that you don't accidentally turn it upside down and inject yourself in the thumb, as opposed to injecting the patient underneath mm. you. Still, though, it happens. Still, it happens. So there's the design factors. How do you design the, the medicine? How do you design the safeties on it? How do you make it shaped a certain way? There's the training factors. When you train, one of your mantras is cap off, thumb down, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the sort of simulated part. There's all of the layers that come into that. And essentially, all of those pieces stacked together are a very simplified version of human factors, which is asking this question of how do humans and teams and things that humans make mm -hmm. interact with the environment in a way that hopefully produces better results as opposed to worse results. What else would you add to that? Is, do you so, have a counterexample? So is there something yeah, else? So just, yeah. uh, well, yeah. So three examples I can think of. The first one, actually, you talk about your EpiPen. As you described that, why don't they put the plunger as a color on the outside of the EpiPen? I have seen some that are designed like that. Some of the Narcan auto injectors have an external plunger like that. Yeah. So even if you got the wrong end, mm -hmm. then actually it, it's not going to happen because you, you're not going to stick the, the sharp end through your thumb because actually that's where the pressure piece is. So, you know, human factors at its core is a design science. It's about looking at those sorts of things. I can think of when I was, it was after the first Gulf War, so early 1990s, and people were using atropine pens to counter nerve agent poisoning. And the drill pens that we had were exactly the same, but they just had a little plastic nib that you would stick. And one of the guys came back off operations and didn't empty out his respirator sack properly and ended up taking a live atropine pen into the training scenario, pulled it out, whacked it in his leg, a big scream, and went, Oh, and everybody's like, oh, 
And, and so there is that piece of making sure that you don't end up with live rounds sure. effect in, in, a, in a situation. And I'm just thinking of in, in the States, the mix-ups between taser shooting and, and live round shooting and, sure. and actually placing weapons differently. You know, the fact that they're different color to me is almost irrelevant because nobody picks it up and goes, oh, it's the yellow one or it's the black one. That those, what you think might be really obvious demarcations or, you know, discriminators in the height of the moment, they probably aren't. And that requires you, as, as a key thing, is to go and have a conversation with people yep. about how do they use it, not design engineers who, having been part of a design process, oh, it's obvious how you do this. And then you go and speak to people, and they go, that's not how we use it. Oh, right. Yep. So having a naive mind is a really powerful way of where, you know, I've never come across EpiPens before other than the description, mm -hmm. but actually just thinking about what's the failure mode, right? How do I isolate? And you said, right, stick the thumb on the side. But actually, if I have to use my a collar on the outside, it means I can't actually, if, if I plunge it, I'm guessing what happens is in a normal EpiPen, if you put it upside down, the plunging action as if you're going to stick the needle into the person is the bit that activates the plunger and then the needle sticks out the other way. So it's actually, if you put the collar... So it, mm -hmm. when it, I got you. It, if you yeah, if you put the collar on the outside, you can't actually activate it because the collar won't trigger. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so let's zoom out for one second here. Oh, yeah. So there's two things we're talking about. So one is this question of what's the failure mode of something, right? Anytime you're doing a process that has to work in a must not fail environment whatever that must not fail environment is, you're mm -hmm. underwater, you're in space, you're in an ER, whatever it is, right? Where there are real consequences to this, you have to think about this idea of what's the mode of failure. And what yes. we're describing is how incredibly non-obvious that is, even for a very simple, what is really a simple system of like a needle and a spring, right? Yeah. How many ways can that go wrong? It turns out it can go wrong a lot of ways, right? And you have to think about that and you have to learn from it. So how does that work? Well, some of that works ahead of time. Well, let's just imagine what could go wrong. Right? We're getting a little bit into work is done versus, you know, mm. work, is, imagine work is done yet. imagined yeah. versus work is reported versus whatever the fourth one is, which I think is work is recorded or something like that. But yeah, whatever the fourth one. Anyway, so we're getting into this idea that like, well, we can do a little bit just by thinking ahead and by imagining and you can employ other cognitive strategies. You can do pre-mortems. You can do things that are running it backwards to try to make that more useful. You mm. can do simulations where you just watch people with non-live things go back and forth and see how they do it. And you're like, oh, wait, why would they turn it that way? I don't know. Sometimes they do. Yeah. Right. But you also have to look ahead and be like, well, what are people actually doing? And record those stories. So the, and that one requires of the, a cultural environment, social yeah. environment to allow that because th this piece of work has disclosed and work has done. Mm -hmm. You've got to have what my perspective, psychological safety is the shared mental belief within that team that it's okay to say something or challenge something, put your hand up and say, oh, I'm not sure about this. And a just culture, which is where you've had something go wrong and you're looking backwards and saying, where's the context? And one of the things that comes up often in safety sciences that accidents happen as deviations from normal, which is not the same as deviations from rules. Because rules and normal might be quite different. 
But if you haven't created the right social or cultural environment, and I ask you, Dan, how do you go about doing your job? Sure. If you're operating in a punitive environment, it's by the book, Gareth. This is how we do it. And it's like, yeah, okay. And so me as a leader in an organization, I'll sit there, hey, Dan's managing the risk or we're managing the risk as an organization because the rules cover what we need them to do. Mm-hmm. But actually, if I have developed a learning culture, a just culture, psychological safety environment, and I say, hey, Dan, well, let's start with the design piece, but it gets to the point where we've deployed something. And then you go, Dan, tell me how you do it. And you went, you know what? It sucked the last time we did this because of X, Y, and Z. And to, for me to get the goals done that you reward me for, I had to bend or break the rules. But you congratulated me and rewarded me for those outcomes. Now, if we don't have that dialogue, I, as the, the leader within the organization, you deliver outcomes, and I have no idea that what you're doing is bending stuff to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. But when stuff goes wrong, I'll come down and go, hey, Dan, why don't you follow the rules? Because they're not followable. Right. They're not followable. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you're in a complex space like ER or emergency medicine, you've got principles. You haven't got rules. Hmm. Well, you have both, right? You have you have principles of how you're operating and what things work with. And then you also have rules that are frequently imposed from the outside and okay. not from the universe of it. And actually, I remember very distinctly when I was in so I was in medical school and I was doing my MD training and my PhD training at the same time. And I was it was a really it's a really unique environment for a number of reasons. One of which is you get very different views on how the world works from these two camps. Right. And so from the PhD side of it, from the scientist side, rigor and rule and ground truth are the most important things, right? Like it is black and white and you're doing this and you're looking at things and it's this or that. Medicine is very different, right? The highest value Mm. is not necessarily achieving perfect truth. It's relieving suffering and working with a patient. And there are lots of times when those two goals are aligned and there are lots of times when they're not. Right. And so we had a, an example of, oh, I don't know if I can say this example on a podcast. I'm going to scratch that. <laughs> we had a well, couple of times. You've got some, um, I can see immediately you've got organizational pressures mm-hmm. and the fear of litigation. So the whole sure. offensive medicine that goes on of not wanting to be litigated, sued is right. We're going to have more tests. We're going to have more tests because I need sure. to get the perfect answer so that if something goes wrong, I can defend myself to say I did everything I could, mm-hmm. but actually that everything you could have done was expedite the process and deal with some uncertainties. And the majority of the occasions is going to go well. Sometimes it's not, and it's a, that that conversation that needs to happen with the survivors, the family, or, or, or whatever. I mean, it's also worth highlighting. Okay, so so what's a counterexample to that? What's something that works really well? that is designed to circumvent this. And one of the one of the things that I think we see a lot in the ER, and there are parallels in manufacturing, I think it's called the on the and on cord in the yes, yeah, yeah. so is the idea that most of our rule structures are built with an escape valve, which is like if the senior person thinks it needs to go left, everybody goes left. 
right? Mm-hmm. So our criteria for activating for a trauma team activation, right? What will get the entire trauma and ER team together in the same point, in the same time? We have hard criteria. Actually, I don't want I don't want to call it hard and soft criteria. I think that's the wrong way mm-hmm. to look at it. I think I'll say we have explicit criteria that are like heart rate above whatever, age above mm-hmm. whatever, head injury on a blood thinner, you know, uh, pregnant patient greater than three months with high mechanism. Th- these like very like clear criteria. And then mm-hmm. there's the bottom line is always attending physician discretion because there are things that you need to activate that we can't put in a single structure that we can't write a rule around, but we know your experience allows you to say, no, no, spin up, right? Even though I can't tell you why, I can't explain it, I can't do it. And when those things happen, they're great learning opportunities because they usually involve not just the case, they hopefully involve not just the case, but also a detailed discussion of why did you do that? What did you see that wasn't on that list that made you want to spin up? What do you see or what did you expect to happen? What did you think was coming around the corner for that? And so, so you know, we're talking about this like split between rules and norms. And most of the time we talk about that as a, I guess, a bad thing, right? Like not to label it, but I think it's a bad thing most of the time, or at least it's the source of confusion if it's not a bad thing, right? Because I would say norms mm-hmm. usually get stuff done and it's often the rules that are in the wrong space, not the other way around. These are big sweeping statements that probably have a lot of counterexamples. But you know, there's also ways yeah. that that split is actually really worthwhile because we can't build rules that solve all these problems, especially on the, the cutting, bleeding edge of stuff. I, I totally agree. And and I'm just thinking about Ivan Papillidi and Krista Vessel's recent book, Human and Organization of Potential. And Ivan talks about the Dreyfus and Dreyfus model of moving from novice to expert or mastery. And when people are, I'm going to say, technically incompetent, they don't know what to do. They're given structures, standards, rules, processes, the book to Mm -hmm. say, this is how you do it. And over time, that experience, their expertise, that mastery develops. So actually, the book doesn't hold as much weight as it does in the real world. But that requires organizations to invest considerably in individuals. And just because you've got a qualification or you've got a certification, it doesn't mean you're actually competent for the operational space you're in. And the whole apprenticeship, mentoring, developmental models, capabilities that are out there are critical. But bean counters go, They're a bum on a seat. They cost X amount. They've got that qualification. They will do because the inexperienced person costs less than the expert. But that transfer and the the recent stuff from Gary Klein's piece about Mm -hmm. transferring tacit knowledge is such a difficult thing because you can't explain it without the context. And and Dave Snowden talks about context. Sorry, knowledge without context is meaningless. Mm -hmm. The more I have in common with you, we can reduce the amount of transferred information because we've got shared mental models and I can give you 20% of knowledge. But if we're both novices or if I'm an expert and you're a novice, I have to spend so much more time setting the scene for you to understand how that little nugget of knowledge fits in. And that's a conflict with the world that happens now especially if you're in high-risk environments. And so you've got to have those mentoring apprenticeship-type models. So 
Gareth, how does that relate back to what you were saying earlier about what happens underwater stays underwater, right? <laughs> like when you're telling, and feel free to riff off this in any direction, but so, and I am fairly ignorant about diving, but so when you have two people on a dive and you're saying one of them went through an experience and they now need to go, they don't need to, but they want to tell the other people around them in order to sort of reduce the probability of that thing happening again or learn from it or ask questions mm -hmm. or whatever. How much context are they doing for that? Are they doing a lot of scene setting? Is there a lot of knowledge transfer back and forth between divers, even people that are experts at the same thing, doing the same skill set? I'll tack onto that. Right before the new year, we had a very challenging airway in one of the ERs. And the airway required us to perform surgical front of neck access, which is a relatively rare crike, exactly. And the crike was complicated and there were some other factors that that came into it. And so one of the things we find ourselves doing, and I ended up being the operator, I shifted from a, a teacher to an operator role in order to, you know, to secure the airway. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're doing is we find ourselves talking through with each other, you know, attending to attending level, hey, what happened? Mm -hmm. What was that like? And then also attending to resident level, like, here's what I was thinking, here's what I was doing, here's what was going through my head, here's what wasn't going mm -hmm. through my head, right? So you have this multi-directional sharing of knowledge that is this storytelling for learning kind of idea. And you, I'm finding myself spending a lot of time, well, how do I shape the story? What factors do I put into it? How much context do I give? Do, like, do I have to tell the story about this other thing that happened like 10 years ago where I did a similar thing once and that's what I was thinking? Like, how do you sort of, you know, set that stage for it? So, I don't know, here are all the pieces. Please build something interesting out of that. Yeah. So, so the first thing I would say is storytelling is complex, which means it's emergent in that sense. So, uh, uh, and the, what I found personally is it requires a dialogue back and forth with somebody. So if somebody comes to me and says, I've had this event and we'll start talking about stuff and they will say something. It's like, oh, that's what, that makes sense. So me as the receiver of the storyteller as a way of trying to codify that for other people, I have a broad range of questions and knowledge and stuff that I can then start joining dots. The person who's telling the story to me doesn't necessarily recognize the significance of those elements mm -hmm. because a lot of the stuff that happens in diving is very proximal in mm -hmm. terms of understanding cause and effect, as opposed to going much further out and up and out in that sense and looking at the systems and how people have been taught and their materials and their experiences in the past. Sorry, I want to make sure I understand that. Sure. Can you say that again? Things in diving are very proximal. Tell me more about uh, Proximal, that. so time and space. So the majority of incident reporting systems in diving and the majority of the research is very much in terms of time and space of the event and is often very outcome focused. And part of that is because the organizations that are involved in doing Diving safety research are medical-based. So decompression sickness, arterial gas embolisms, hypoxia, hyperoxia, hypercapnia. That's, you know, and those are normally relatively close into the event in terms of time and space. I'm probably the sort of the first person that's coming in and saying, whoa, let's look a little bit further out here. And, and as an example of this, one of the, the training agencies in the UK, the British Tobacco Club, they manage the incident reporting system for the UK. 
and they classify incidents based on outcomes. And they've got about a dozen categories. So it could be that a diver has decompression sickness, and that is what it would be classified as. But that decompression sickness might be caused by a rapid ascent because the diver has run out of gas following a separation and task loading mm. and potentially poor planning in terms of their gas management You know, prior to the dive and then during the dive. So it would be classified as DCS, decompression sickness, but actually the learning is much further back in time and space. And the problem is if we just look at the outcomes and classifications there, we don't look at the system's causes. Hmm. And it's then very easy to turn around and go, fix the diver for being stupid, dangerous, difficult, whatever it is, being incompetent, they lost situational awareness. And actually, let's look at this as a much bigger piece. But you know, as humans, we're hardwired to look at the outcomes and then apply our hindsight and join the dots. Um, so going back to the bit of people reflecting on stories, I think people, my, my sort of experience and the stories that have been told to me is that divers often know that something has gone wrong, but there isn't necessarily the social environment to allow that story to be shared. So as an example, one of my research informants, I did a, a focus group, cave diving group in Florida, and I had six people in there. And one of them was an experienced diver. And he said, you know, if somebody compromises a team protocol, like the minimum gas that we've got between us, that we can, if I run out of gas, I can go to you and we can do a gas sharing exit, basically buddy breathing, we'd be fine. And we plan our protocols based around that. And this diver said, look, if you breach a protocol like that, when we surface, we're going to go to the car park and I'm going to tear you a new one for compromising team protocols. And it's like, I said, even before you'd understood the story, he went, yeah, because he's breached those standards and he knows what they are. Mm. Here's the hard rules. You don't break them. And then about 10 minutes later, one of the other guys said, two years ago, I was on a cave dive and I nearly ran out of gas. I breached my protocols and I haven't told anybody this story because I've been afraid of what would happen. And this guy was a really experienced cave diver using underwater scooters, rebreathers, going a long way back into a cave. And he said he got task loaded going in. He got flustered. They were doing a photo shoot. He forgot that he was working hard, didn't change gas when he was supposed to. And as he exited the dive, he sort of looked down at pressure gauges and went, oh my God, this is not where it's supposed to be. And he had a whole bunch of mental factors and he didn't tell anybody about it. So he knew that was there. Mm. And he said, the reason he told the story is because I created a safe environment within that focus group where he could share that story. And he was confident that if somebody else had jumped on him, I would have said, oi, this is human nature. And it's why in a lot of my training programs, I take little snippets of video that people easily jump to conclusions about. And this goes right back to sure. our curiosity right at the start. And say, right, here's a 10 second clip. What's your thoughts? And you get two schools of thought. Stupid idiot, Darwin Award winner, deserved it this is how the attention system works or we don't have enough context. And it's this piece that says, actually, we have to get more context. And we've got to teach people what context is. What are the factors? What are those performance shaping factors, those influencing factors? And, and we move to a frame that 
I changed the word, why did it happen, to how did it make sense? Because as mm. soon as you say, Dan, why did you do that? What I'm doing now is I have a view of what right is, and I'm asking you to justify your position, and I'm going to focus on you. But if I say to you, how did it make sense for you to do that? Now I'm looking at your decision-making process, which will be influenced by the context. Now, it might be you turn around and go, I have no idea why I did that or how it made sense. All right, now we can ask the questions, okay, so have you ever encountered something like this before? Mm. What's close to it? You know, Have you had something in the past? There must have been something that has shaped your decision-making, and, and Clyde talks about satisficing. It's good enough. It doesn't mean that it is exactly right. And when you're in the emergency medicine space, you're unlikely to encounter exactly the same scenarios each time. If you are, you're going to be really good at it. And now you can be the mentor and the coach for others. And you bring people in and say, hey, this is different. Let's look at it. Yeah. But it's out trying to share that knowledge. And people won't know what to share until you start a dialogue. So in medicine, we have this concept of the morbidity and mortality conference, right? Which is a very imperfect but useful tool for essentially telling stories like this. And it's a legal space. And when done well, it's also a cultural space that allows for a separation between what's in that bubble and what's out of that bubble. And so mm -hmm. from a legal perspective, if you're within morbidity and mortality, it's not discoverable from yeah. legal stuff. That's different though. That That's sort of a fundamental piece, but different than what you're describing, which is also that it has to be culturally acceptable to actually share and discuss, right? Because I've been in morbidity and mortality conferences where people are yelling, you're a disgrace to our profession, right? Yeah. Uh, and like, you should leave this job. And thankfully that was when you know I was a lot younger and medicine has changed since then, hopefully. But, well, but there's a difference between that and asking so I see these three questions as being related that you're describing, right? So there's a difference between ask, like, what is the minimum it takes to tell a story? And then how are we really doing it well? And the three questions that come to mind are one, what you're saying, how did it make sense for you to do that? Another one, Dan Chadwick Jones, uh, a previous guest on the podcast and mm -hmm. former VP of performance from BP. Yeah, I know. That's really nice. Absolutely amazing, yeah. right? Brilliant woman who says, you know, a team that's like yours, but slightly worse what would they have struggled with in this moment, right? Mm -hmm. To get you to think outside of your own hero story, right? And then Kevin's here from the last podcast we recorded that came out just recently, SWAT team commander who would ask his team, tell me what else you considered and didn't do. And those three questions to me are part of this triangulation process of getting at like, tell me like, like instead of jumping to conclusions about what happened, I want you to tell the story. And then I want you to tell me all the other stuff that's around the story. What's the context? What do I not know about that was there? What else is going on with it? And the space that it takes and the skills that it takes, both from the storyteller and the rest of the, the audience. story yeah, community. The audience. Yeah. I don't know if there's yeah. a good word for that. I guess it's audience, but it's more participatory necessarily than just a passive absorbing audience. Mm -hmm. um, the working group or whatever you want to call learning, it. Learning team. Yeah. I'm going to have to ask my incredible friend, Claire Murphy, who's an expert storyteller. I'm going to have to ask her what the word is for this after this. But like the skills on both sides of that equation are a lot that it takes to really make that work the right way. Your, your comment there about what did you see reminds me of Klein's comment of experts see the invisible. 
Mm. So, so the difference between novices, well, yes, something to be there, whereas experts will spot stuff that's missing. And if you don't know it should be there, you won't know it's missing. Yeah. Looking for negative signals is a really big. And so, you know, how do you prove a negative? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you teach somebody that? And it, it only comes from the dialogue and it, and it emerges. That story will emerge as stuff will be discussed. And it might be you're dealing with a trauma scene on the side of the road or a, you know, a firefight or whatever it is. There will be triggers in the conversation and somebody go, oh, yes, right. I know that. That then shaped my decision. But if you don't have a, a trigger or a stimulant, then actually it becomes really difficult to think about that because you don't know it's relevant until it comes as part of that story. And that takes time and effort and practice and skill mm-hmm. and the recognition that you can say way more. The The big challenge then from my side is how do you synthesize that to then create wider organizational learning? And, and that's another piece that comes out of this is that you may develop really skilled teams because they've experienced stuff, but how do you share that? Sure. How do you get out to another similar team? And that is a continual challenge. And uh-huh. I think it's McChrystal's team of teams. And he said, you know, if you're going to have people who are going to be your ambassadors, they're going to be the people that are going to represent you. You want to pick your best team member, the person that you cannot do without. And you say, right, you're now the liaison officer over there. And that then is taking their knowledge and sharing it. Now, it might mean that you lose a little bit of specialism, but hopefully there's been enough shared team knowledge that actually it's not a critical loss. And if it's a critical loss, you probably need to develop your team a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, there's so many wrinkles with this in terms of, you know, in, in a way we're discussing, like you said, how do individual teams build expertise? And this is, if done correctly, a good way to do that, right? Yeah. But what's the surface area of that problem set, right? You only get the things that you run into, even still, right? You only get the things you run into. So, what we're saying is within the surface area of the problems, you know, you and I are on a team. Great. We're doing our operations, whether they're underwater or above one or whatever. If we do all the stuff we're saying really well, then we harvest more learning from the experiences that we have. Right? Only if you recognize that. Okay. So that so that's the downside of being really successful is it requires you to work much harder to pick the little things, the marginal gains that are there. Because otherwise you sit there and go, that's cool. So I think your questioning technique, if you were in a really high-performance team, the questioning technique for that team would be different to a novice team that are in the developing space. Sure. And and so you can start playing, because you said, we can only learn from the stuff that we've faced. But actually, you can play the hypothetical game. Yeah, perfect. And when you've got the expertise, you will have many more what-ifs to think about and many more answers to those what-ifs, and you create an emergent story accordingly. Mm -hmm. So you can learn from what you've faced, and you can learn better. You can harvest more or less learning from what you face, depending on the questions you ask, the stories you tell, the environments you set up to tell those stories in, and the way you culturally look for things. 
right? Do you celebrate the, you know, like scraping the bottom of the runway and bouncing off as a victory? Or do you look at the why that it happened and like, do you dig back into it? And what you're saying is so true. If you have experts, these experts can provide other angles of vision on what's happening that might allow you to basically force multiply the things that you face. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can say, well, hey, what if in this case, and this is, we do this in the ER all the time, right? I might take, if I'm not the primary operator of a case where there's an airway going on, for example, I might bring a junior doctor next to me and be like, okay, I want you to watch what's going on. What do you think would happen if this goes wrong next? Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen if this happened? And, you know, you're, you're sort of playing the case out on the side with them or just game this out with me. What do you think would go on here? And I think for that is that the next level of learning is saying, how did you come to that conclusion? What were the cues yeah. that led you to that? And and that's and it's this bit of saying, okay, so can I help understand their rationality in what was going on? And it might be you go, you know what? I don't know. I just had a feeling. Okay, right. If people have got feelings about sure. stuff, let's dig into those. Yeah. And then what's cool is I, I guess like sort of the next level on that to think about as you're describing is okay, you're on a team and I'm on a team. Maybe we're not even on the same team, but you guys hit some problem that you learn from. You run through this thing. You have great storytelling chops, Mm -hmm. lack of a better word, you know, skills and and structures and all the things that it takes to tell good stories. You're learning from it. How do you pass that to me? Right? And this is sort like, it's not quite near transfer. It's not quite far transfer. It's like something a little bit different than that, right? Because you have to encapsulate it. And this gets a little bit at tactical decision games or Gary mm. Klein's shadow box training method, right? Yes. Where you're talking through like, how do you share an, enough of an experience that people can actually, did you ever read those choose your own adventure books that were in like, what was it? Yeah. Like the eighties? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like you're creating a story that people can play along with and not just absorb passively, but actually participate in essentially to increase the surface area of their learning on that. So I don't know if you've come across in your space learning teams as, as a way of trying to facilitate that. So that by teams that name is, yeah. Yeah. So so learning teams in the sort of the, the new view of safety or safety two perspective is a structured way and it's got two key parts. One is the problem identification process in which you will sit there and just brainstorm all of the stuff that is happening. You particularly stay away from solutioneering. And the first part is normally done over sort of two half days uh, with a soak period overnight. Mm -hmm. So you will do all of the diagnosis stuff where you start to understand the problem. You send people away and then the first part of the second day is a recap of the diagnosis. And then you start moving into the solutioneering. To be importantly, you get different stakeholders involved. So it's taking a systems view of that. And what I would say is probably one of the ways to share knowledge is if you know you're going to have a, an in-depth debrief is actually an, an, a learning exercise is you bring a couple of people from another team. So one of the things about learning teams is if you get parallel teams across or the learning review process is a similar thing, you get experts from other areas or operators from other areas and they sit in and go have you encountered this before how did you solve it because you haven't had an accident what was your solution to this so actually you embed at that learning process rather than 
you come up with a product and now I'm going to transfer it across. Sure. What we're doing is actually co-creating that learning within the team plus additional stakeholders within your system vertically, but also across the systems and, and the entities that are there. Yeah, that, that actually is so. Uh, I, that is now ringing a bell now with Decker and Conklin's of doing safety differently. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, super interesting. It's interesting also, like how high touch that is, right? How much energy that requires to admit mm-hmm. people from different teams together in that way. We were riffing a little bit before we turned, you know, the record button on about about <laughs> about the idea of being outside a team versus inside a team in some sense, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think what you're describing is really cool if you have the ability within a large organization to staff people that way, right? To devote the resources that it takes to smashing two teams together and being like, you all figure this out as a unit right now. It's a little bit more challenging, yeah. Real learning doesn't happen immediately. Mm. And and that means that you have these dialogues, you have these developments, you have these experiments because you're operating in the complex space and they might take time to reach fruition. And in the modern pace of business, Right, here we go. Here's a root cause analysis. Here's the thing. Yep. Here's the person to fix. Here's the process to write. There we go. Solved it. Because actually, we've met the organizational need to show that we're doing something. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's another part of human factors and systems thinking is the fact that there are pressures outside, organizational pressures, leadership pressures, that public pressures that say you have to be seen to be doing something and something is better than nothing. And that's something actually might be wrong, which then causes more of a problem because you're dealing with a complex space. That certainly never happened in medicine ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's it's that piece of humans are amazing at coming up with ingenious situations. I think, I think it's Snowden talks about running out of bed alarms in an ER. So they then actually gave the patients better saucepans. So when they had a problem, they, you know, they didn't have enough patient alarms, so they just gave them something that they could actually make a sound with saying, I need some help. <laughs> now, that's not written in any book anywhere, but that's a bit of saying, okay, that patient needs to generate noise and get attention. What have we got to help them? Okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, you find and, something. And you, <laughs> but to find something... You've also you've got to create a mindset of creativity and curiosity. Mm-hmm. If you are developing automatons who are just doing stuff by rote because rote is easy to measure, then in the, the complex, uncertain space we're operating, you can't do that. You can from a compliance point of view. Sure. But actually that doesn't give you successful outcomes. Well, no. it doesn't give you it gives you a successful outcome because it meets the organization's need to say, tick, tick. But it might not actually give you what your priority outcome is. Yeah, I feel like that could be a whole, uh, and should be a whole nother deep dive into the interface between teams and systems around them, right? I think we barely scratched the surface of that. We're coming up on the end of our hour here. And I, I want to give you, as we leave, a chance to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this. Anything you want them to think about or do differently over the next shift. And I'm going to give you a second to think about that. And while I'm giving you a second to think about that, I want to give a shout out to a couple folks that whose work we sort of mentioned today and then 
you should go back and look at more, right? So two amazing women, Claire Murphy and Zab uh, Johnson. So Claire... Claire is an amazing storyteller and does incredible work around storytelling through mission critical teams. We did an episode together about the power of story and learning and teaching, which you should definitely go back and listen to. And then Zab Johnson is one of the world's experts on the neuroscience of vision and runs part of the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. And that's actually incredibly relevant for a lot of what we talked about today. We had a, a this comment about the taser being yellow and the gun being black, which we sort of didn't press on and went in a different direction instead. The real punchline there is that like, at some point you're entering the part of the world that really relies on how the brain is actually wired and works and how the mammalian nervous system actually works. And so a lot of things that you think might go one way, when you really look at the science, they actually go left instead of right. And understanding the details of what do we know about the edges of how the brain works, Michael Platt would be another great person to work through on this, is incredibly powerful and informative as you're trying to design systems that really do work under pressure, right? It's not enough to just be like, I think it'll work like this. You really have to dig in and look at the details underneath it. Okay. So I hope I've stalled long enough for you. Do you have a challenge? <laughs> Two challenges then. One, the first one is... An example where you have moved from why did they do that to how did it make sense and what was the difference in the learning that came out of it? And the other one links to what you just said about individuals is go and find some diverse people from your own domain. I've not, you know, I think you introduced me to Claire on LinkedIn already. I haven't heard of Zab, but I'm going to go looking for that. And, and I would say to that, is David Epstein's book, Range, which is all about Amazing. how generalists survive or succeed in a world of specialism. And I put myself as a very broad, thin person. I'm quite large myself, but it, it, in terms of my perspectives, it's about connecting lots and lots of different things. So so that would be my second piece, is, and that's a much easier. Go and find some different people. Get outside your own space and learn from different spaces because people are people. We're wired broadly the same. The stories are what changes and having a different story can change your perspective on what's happening. Amazing. So thank you. I love it, Dan. It's been awesome. Oh, totally a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And yeah, if you're listening to that challenge, put the put the stuff in the YouTube comments or set it up on LinkedIn or just email me at dan at emergencymind.com and we'll make sure those get out to everybody. I'm going to end uh, by saying again, our job here on the Emergency Mind podcast is to bring the best of what we can figure out in the entire world together about applying knowledge under pressure. We don't provide medical advice and any of the views or anything that we say are our own views and not that of anybody else that we work for or with in any context. And with that, I will say again, thank you, Gareth, so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the advances you're putting out in the world. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Love it. And I feel so insignificant compared to who you've just been talking about. So thank you. Love it. Right on.